Hello everyone. On Sunday I had the privilege of concluding the preaching series we've been in as a church entitled Encounters with Jesus. But unfortunately the preach didn't make it to a recording so I'm going to be giving that message again now from the office and I hope it's a blessing to you. We've looked over the last seven weeks at various encounters with Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels, and each one happens at a specific location. We've looked at an encounter on a mountain, in a crowd, up a tree, at a picnic, at a party, on a boat. All different settings for life-changing encounters with Jesus, and today the location is a road, a life-changing journey for two individuals and yet it's the kind of journey we all have to take at one point or another. It involves journeying through confusion and doubt and distress and finding surprising hope, excitement, revelation and joy. And so what we're going to do is join two of Jesus's disciples on the road to Emmaus and the setting is that this is the third day since Jesus was crucified and they're traveling to Emmaus and discussing together. So the reading is from Luke 24 verses 13 to 35. Says that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about all the things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognised him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. This journey begins with doubt, distress and disappointment, and it ends in faith, hope, love and great joy. And it's a journey that we all of us have to travel, sometimes several times in one form or another. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. You don't know or love Jesus, but you're here because you're disappointed and disillusioned with life and looking for something true to hope in. Well, this journey is for you. Or maybe you're someone who would say, no, I am a follower of Jesus, and yet you find yourself confused, disappointed, doubting and distressed on a painful road. Well, this journey is for you too. Let's join these two people on the road to Emmaus and see what we find. See, in verse 15, it tells us as they travelled, they were talking and discussing together. Now, it's not entirely clear who these two people were. We know that they were followers of Jesus, and we know that one of them is called Cleopas. And many commentators speculate that the second person was likely his wife, Mary, who was one of the women at Jesus' crucifixion, listed in John 19, verse 25. But what we do know is that whoever they were, they were followers of Jesus together. They were together discussing everything that had happened. And we also know that they were looking sad. Verse 16 tells us that. They were disappointed and confused about everything that had happened in recent days. See, they had been following Jesus and they'd seen his mighty power displayed in his miracles and in his breathtaking teaching. And they'd thought, this is it. The moment Israel will be rescued out of suffering under Roman occupation. But instead, they'd seen their leader himself suffer and die at the hands of the Romans, having been handed over by their own chief priests. This they could not reconcile in their thinking. This was not what they had foreseen their story to look like, not what they had imagined when they followed Jesus. They're confused, but they're still together. And when life unravels and looks like you'd never imagined, you so need people alongside you people who will journey along that road with you. In 2002, when I arrived at university, I found myself on a road of doubt and distress and confusion. I'd grown up in the church and I'd believed in and loved Jesus, but had found all sorts of insecurities and uncertainties overtake me as I arrived at university. Was it all real? Was I real? How could I know? It was a deeply painful road of doubt. And and on that road, certain people journeyed with me. They listened to me and talked with me. They were patient with me and they loved me. I needed them. I, I might not have survived without them. They were God's gift. And if you are in a dark place of doubt and distress, you need brothers and sisters in the church to journey with you. We all do. The thing is, back in 2002, I couldn't work it all out by myself. That was one of the problems. Much like these two disciples on the road, they were discussing things, but the reality is their logic, their intellect, their reason couldn't bring them the clarity and the peace they needed. And that was my story too. Only Jesus can provide that kind of clarity. 
But for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, togetherness was the context into which truth could be spoken and received and ultimately Jesus revealed. Roads of doubt and distress need journeying together. So often that's the context into which truth can be received. If a road of doubt and distress is where you are, Oasis is a really safe place for you to be. And we want to journey with you. Journey along that road, though it may be painful, expecting Jesus to come alongside and bring you to a place of clarity and peace. In verse 15 and 16, it says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. As these two disciples were journeying together along the road, Jesus himself came right alongside. He was right there with them, their risen saviour. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. Why? Why is that? Because this journey, though painful, was full of purpose. Jesus' intention was to reveal to them truths about himself so sweet and deep and heartwarming that this journey was necessary and it would transform them. Jesus knew that. But in their current disappointment and disorientation, the disciples couldn't see Jesus. But he was right there, right alongside, journeying with them, ready to speak. For these disciples... If they had recognised Jesus straight away, there would have been a depth of knowledge of God that they would have missed. There was purpose in this painful journey. This is a source of great comfort if you're in that place right now. I'm actually really grateful for the time of distress and doubt and confusion that I walked through at university and for other painful roads I've walked through since. Because each time I've found... God has revealed himself in such precious ways that were unique to that road. And perhaps that's your story right now. Take heart. The Lord is near. But I should give a warning at this point, though. You see, I have seen two types of doubt demonstrated by followers of Jesus. There is a type that seeks to push Jesus away, close off to his voice, escape from his people, Exchange him for pleasures elsewhere, be that in new experiences or in success or in sex or in reputation or or even in lots of religious activities. And there's a difference between being slow of heart to believe and hardening your heart away from belief. You see, that second road is a frightening doubt to observe. It's destructive and I've known people fall right away along that road. Beware a heart that doesn't want God. But then there is a type of doubt that is pained by the presence of doubt. The kind of doubt that finds the sense of the loss of Jesus' presence distressing. It's the kind that inclines a person's ear always towards Jesus. Always wanting to hear more about him, to see him more clearly. Like these disciples, ready to talk and listen about Jesus. It's the type of doubt that populates the Psalms when David or others cries out, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face? In that place, 
desire for him is cultivated and any proposition of leaving him is met with the response, where else would we go? You, Jesus, have the very words of eternal life, as Peter expresses in John six sixty eight. See, on that road, the Lord is near, walking alongside, doing a work within. In your distress, you may only recognise his presence in retrospect, as was the case for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. C.H. Spurgeon writes about roads like that. He says, Changeful experiences often leads the anxious believer to inquire, Why is it thus with me? I looked for light, but lo, darkness came. For peace, but behold, trouble. It was but yesterday I could read my title clear and rejoice with confidence in my future inheritance. Today my spirit has no hopes but many fears, no joys but much distress. Is this part of God's plan with me? Yes, it is even so. The eclipse of your faith, the darkness of your mind, the fainting of your hopes, all these things are but parts of God's method of making you ripe for that great inheritance upon which you shall soon enter. They are waves that wash you further upon the rock. If that describes you today, take heart. If you feel like these two disciples on the road, keep going along that road. Keep opening up to Jesus as he's proclaimed to you and expect from him the warming of your heart and the deepening of your faith. My personal experience, both at the beginning of uni and more recently, is precisely that through those disorientating waves, I've been placed more firmly on Christ the Rock and found him to be more sure and more desirable than I previously knew. Perhaps though you're listening to this and you're new to Christianity, just checking it out, looking in and aware of how fragile your life is and how flimsy your hope feels. Perhaps you, like these two on the road to Emmaus, can't seem to work out what life's all about by yourself. Well, the fact that you're listening is, I believe, because Jesus is coming alongside and wanting to speak to you and reveal the hope of who he is. Listen to him. See, in verse 21, it says, The disciples said, But we had hoped. You can almost feel their sadness and pain as they tell of how Jesus had been delivered up, condemned to death and crucified. And perhaps wiping a tear from their eye, they say in verse 21, but we had hoped he was the one to deliver Israel. We had hoped. They had no framework for the events that had unfolded in Jerusalem. No framework in their minds for a suffering Messiah. Despite the fact that all of the Old Testament scriptures point to that expectation, it just hadn't computed. They had hoped Jesus would lead them to escape from Roman rule. But Jesus had died by the greatest symbol of Roman rule in the world, the cross. Crucifixion was meant to say, mess with us Romans, this is what you get. A power display wielding the weapon of death. And still today, death is the weapon of choice for oppressors and acts of evil. We've seen it again tragically, even over the last week or ten days. In Vegas, death striking terror. We've seen it all too frequently in recent months. 
terrorists and world rulers using death to further their agenda and keep people down in fear. It's the ultimate weapon of oppression. The ultimate fear for many, the bringer of terror. And though death is inevitable, it's always a shock when it comes. Always feels like a thief has stolen something. We don't like talking about it. It's like the Dark Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter. Death is he who should not be named. And we all live as though it won't happen to us. Death threatens hope, just as it did for these disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't expect a dying Messiah. But Jesus had not come to accommodate their expectations and hopes and dreams. He'd come to reveal a God far beyond their wildest expectations. He came not to fit our idea of what God must be like, but to show us what God is really like in all his glory. A self-giving, life-giving God of love. He came not to deliver them from political or social or economic oppression. He came to deliver them from the power of death itself, freeing them and us from our slavery to the fear of death, which it talks about in Hebrews 2. Jesus on that road to Emmaus would reveal to these disciples a God whose gift was more glorious and generous and all satisfying than they currently knew, as we will shortly see. But I wonder often, can we too bring our expectations and assumptions and try and squeeze God into them? He won't fit. He is bigger and better than you imagine. He won't simply meet your hopes for life. No, he'll give you what you never knew you hoped for and delight you with himself. He himself being the fulfillment of all our hopes, though often we don't realise how much we desire just him, the fountain of life. We can sometimes think that faith means... An intellectual ascent, working out reality and life and God like you would an equation. Well, faith is reasonable. And, of course, thinking is often really helpful, gaining understanding. But faith is not the preserve of the intellectual any more than it is the preserve of the unintellectual. Faith is not dependent on our mental capacities. Jesus says that we need to come to him like little children, ready to receive. No, faith is a sight of God that transforms us, enabling all other things to fall into their reasonable place. And so faith doesn't come by looking within to our understanding, our feelings, our experience. Faith looks outside of itself to Jesus That's why Jesus says in verse 25, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. See, left to ourselves, we're all too foolish and slow of heart to see God in all his beauty. To see him, we need to be led to him. Even as Jesus leads these two precious disciples on the road to Emmaus, so he would lead us also. He would not have us stay and camp out on a road of doubt and distress. Though that may be the means towards a truer sight of him, it is never the intended end in itself. We must not settle for doubt and distress or fear. No, Jesus says, seek and you will find. 
be led along the road to Jesus. The image of the invisible God, as he is described in Colossians 1.15, he desires to bring us out into faith, hope and love, that sunny place of joy in him. But how? How are we led there? How does faith come along hard roads then? How do we gain that kind of a sight of him? Well, the Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus through his word. And he warms our hearts by his voice. In verse 27 it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus led Cleopas and his partner out of their disorientating doubt and distress by the light of his word. All of the scriptures testify to Jesus. Mike Reeves and Tim Chester explain that the Bible is from God the Father, about God the Son, by God the Spirit. All the Bible is from God, about God, by God. And when the Bible is read and preached aright, it focuses our attention on Jesus, who Hebrews calls the radiance of the Father's glory. The whole sweep of scripture is about him. He is the only begotten son given out of the abundant love of the Father. He, Jesus, is the life giver. And so Jesus says to these disciples, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer such things and then enter into his glory? And then Jesus proceeds to deliver what must have been the greatest sermon of all time to just two people who didn't write it down. I mean, they just kept it for themselves. It would have been really great if they could have written some of that down because I bet it was golden. Jesus explains the happy news as beginning with Moses, by which he means the first five books of the Bible. He explains how all the scriptures point to the Christ redeeming his people through suffering to glory. The whole Bible is about Jesus rescuing us from sin and death and restoring us to God. For example, the story of Abraham offering up his precious son Isaac was always pointing to Jesus, God's only begotten son, offered up for us, the one in whom all God's good promises are stored up and given. The sacrificial lamb of the Passover was always pointing to Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The pillar of fire that led Moses and the Israelites in the desert was pointing forward to Jesus, the light of the world, leading us out of every form of darkness. The true story of David and Goliath was pointing to Jesus, our great hero, who has defeated the giant of our fears, triumphing over death so that we need not run away scared anymore. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah foretold by whose stripes we are healed. He is also the glorious son of man that Daniel saw who will return in victory on the clouds of heaven. He is the son of righteousness prophesied by Malachi who has risen with healing in his wings to shine his righteousness upon us and clothe us in it. And we could go on and on and on. It's all about him. The scriptures reveal Jesus to us. Jesus the way. Jesus the truth. Jesus the life. Jesus by whom we can come to God as our father. 
Jesus, the glorious son, who, as Glenn Scrivener puts it, makes his father our father, his spirit our spirit, his future our future. Glenn Scrivener also points out that many of us have scar stories that we like to tell in a particular way. For example, I have a scar on my left shin. You know how I got it? Playing football in the park when I was a teenager. We were using bikes for goalposts and my team were on a breakaway and my friend had darted down the left wing and to be fair to me put in a pretty good cross I mean it was just a few feet off the ground just in front of me and I thought this is my moment so I did a diving header and scored what can only be described as a glorious goal but landed on a sharp part of one of the bikes which pierced my skin and left me with a scar on my left shin And I love that scar. That scar tells of this glorious goal-scoring moment, which really you should have been there to see. It was something else. That's my scar story. The Bible records God's scar story. All of it pointing ahead to the scars Jesus would bear to rescue us, his scars of love. And so risen Jesus, walking alongside the disciples on the road to Emmaus, was revealing to them that the whole of the Bible is about him making sense of the scars which he bears for us. He had them even on that road, beautified in his risen body. See, his body wasn't resuscitated, it was resurrected. Which is why in the Gospels you have these accounts of people not always recognising him straight away because his body, though the same that had been laid down in the tomb, had somehow a very different quality to it because it wasn't simply resuscitated. It had gone through death and out the other side. A resurrected body. The Bible tells God's scar story. In travelling from doubt and despair to faith and joy happens as we meet Jesus in the scriptures and see his scars for us. In my uni journey was characterised by the word of God becoming so alive to me. It's like every time I opened up the word or heard a preach, it was like it was for me. I, I remember the wall of my room in halls was just covered with post-it notes of Bible verses because whenever I opened up the Bible, it just seemed like, oh, this is something I really need to remember. Write it down, put it on the wall. Oh, this is something so good. I must remember this. Let's write it down, put it on the wall. All of it just felt like I needed it. I needed it. Every moment I wake up and so my whole wall was just covered with post-it notes of the Bible. It was so alive. Martin Luther said this, Even if Christ were given to us and crucified a thousand times, it would all be in vain if the word of God were absent and were not distributed and given to me with the bidding, This is for you, take what is yours. Here on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was opening up to the disciples all the treasures of forgiveness and hope and healing and life promised in the scriptures and found in him and offered to them for free. And he offers himself to you too. Do you see him?
The Spirit of God loves to show us to him in the scriptures as they're preached, read, unpacked, explained, proclaimed. In verse 29, the disciples say, stay with us. At the end of their walk, Cleopas and his companion had such an appetite for the God that they were hearing about in the scriptures that they just wanted more and more. And so they said, please stay with us. They'd they'd again tasted and seen the Lord is good. They had realized that their problem was bigger than they'd ever imagined. The real issue was not economic, political, social oppression at the hands of the Romans, but dead hearts darkened by sin. But they had realized God's deliverance was bigger than they could have imagined. Renewed hearts and death defeated, all by the grace of God. So they urged Jesus, please don't go, stay with us. And Jesus always responds to our desire for him. He says in John 6:37, "Whoever comes to me I will never cast away." In Matthew 7:7, 7, 7, "Ask and it will be given to you." Any desire you have for Jesus is because he's already drawn alongside to speak his word over you by the Spirit. Do you desire him today? He desires you. In verse 30, It says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. See, these two disciples had probably seen Jesus break bread several times at meals or perhaps when he fed the 5,000. And breaking bread was the customary way to start a meal in that culture. Though, of course, it was unusual for the guests to perform the ceremony rather than the host. But then Jesus was welcoming them home much more than they were welcoming him into their home. He was showing them that he's the way to God, the way to the Father, the way, the truth, the life. And he's right here before them. And this moment with these two disciples is strikingly reminiscent of the Jesus breaking bread moment in the upper room just before his arrest. Though... It's not clear that these disciples were there on that night. Nonetheless, this whole scene is quite reminiscent of it. On that occasion, on the night Jesus was betrayed, Luke tells us Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, This is my body which is given for you. He is the one who was broken to make us whole. He's the one who gives us his perfect full righteousness and hands it to us for free to be received as you would taking a piece of bread from someone. He is the one who gives us his very life, taking our death on himself and burying it in his indestructible life. As Jesus broke the bread and gave it to these disciples at Emmaus, they saw God's gift to them. They saw the Christ they had begun to see in the scriptures while they were explained on the road. They saw Jesus risen from the dead, God given to us. They saw sins forgiven. They saw death defeated. They saw the desire of their hearts right before them. They saw what Colossians 2.9 says. In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. They saw him and they received from him Adamaeus as the bread was broken. 
It says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And it goes on to say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? See, the breaking of bread and the explanation of scripture on the road both spoke a word to the disciples. They both spoke God's promise fulfilled in Christ and given to them. They spoke God's victory won in Christ and given to them. Do you see what's happening as Jesus begins that meal with the two disciples? Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. And there you see it as he blesses the bread. Jesus has been crucified, poured out and broken for them and us. There it is in the breaking of the bread. And he is now risen and alive, giving himself to them and to us. There it is in the giving of the bread. Jesus is the bread of life and he has conquered sin and death. This is the word proclaimed to us in the scriptures and in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is God and Saviour, our God and Saviour. And faith is simply the look that says, I see you, I want you. Oh, more than anything, I want you. It's the look that recognises him as the bread of life and takes the bread he blesses, breaks and offers to us and feeds upon it. That's faith. That's what's represented in communion whenever we take it together. If you have been or are on a road of doubt and distress, this encounter with Jesus is good news for you. See him again. If you've never seen him before now, this encounter with Jesus is good news for you. See him. Let faith receive his word to you. You know, each time I've been on a road of doubt or distress, the biggest mistake I have made is to try and find the assurance of my faith within myself, in my feelings or my prayers or my doings, drumming up some psychological state of certainty. That's a road to nowhere. No, faith looks outside of itself to Jesus. Faith is the eye that looks at what's before him. Your eye doesn't look at your eyeball to see that it's there. It, it looks at what's before you. Lift your eyes to Jesus again today. In Jesus, heaven and earth have come together, fully man, fully God. He is the firstborn from among the dead, Colossians 1.18. Death is is the great enemy and its power is sin which separates us from the life-giving God we were created to enjoy but Jesus has defeated sin with his perfect righteousness and he has defeated death with his divine life poured out this is what the Emmaus disciples came to see Tom Wright says this the real slave master keeping the human race in bondage is death itself Earthly tyrants borrow power from death to boost their rule. Victory over death robs the powers of their main threat. Sin, which means humans rebelling against God and so conspiring with death to deface God's good creation, is likewise defeated. Jesus has led God's new people out of slavery and now invites them to accompany him on a new journey to promised land. The road to Emmaus is just the beginning. Hearing Jesus' voice in scripture, knowing him in the breaking of bread is the way. Welcome to God's new world. Jesus is alive. Death is not Lord. 
Jesus is. And as he is gloriously risen, so shall be all those who trust in him. His future, our future. His life, our life. And his resurrection changes everything now. We can be those who live fearlessly, no longer under the fear of death. And it changes everything now in terms of how we treat each other. How we view and treat our bodies. How we treat the environment and the climate. It changes how we see our work. Everything. For new creation has begun. And new creation is God's project. And we're invited into it. And so every time that we exert our energies to preserve beauty. Or to bring order out of chaos. To celebrate life. To embrace creativity. To bring hope. Every time we engage in those activities, we speak of the new creation project which has begun and that which God has started, he will carry on to completion. Don't you just want to praise Jesus, glorify Jesus, enjoy Jesus? There is no one like him. He offers himself to you.